Oh, he is risen. Amen. Happy Easter, Olive Branch. Glad to see you guys. If you're our guest here, thank you for uh, choosing to come and check out Olive Branch and hang out and be with your family member. Or if you're just here, kind of like you got led by the car signs and you just pulled in and realized, whoa, where's this place? Anyway, we're we're a church and uh, we're we're glad you're here this morning. We are uh, excited to uh, dive into a new series. This actually, we're not just going to do an Easter uh, message today. We're going to start a series, a conversation on this idea of verses where things seem to be divided and broken against each other. And we really are inviting you to join us in that conversation. And so hoping that you'd be here for these next few weeks as we deal with this conversation. But it begins here this morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let's pray as we open up together. Would you join me, please? Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your word and the opportunity that we have to be challenged by it. Would you help us to become those reconcilers that we know we need to be and that you've made us to be and that we would see how reconciliation begins here on Easter. And we pray that you would just bless this time, open our ears and open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not very well known. It wasn't very well publicized, but there was a pretty big trade war that happened last week because it happened in my house, actually. My kids, my son Andrew, was all excited. He, my wife had bought him some sleeves to put Pokemon cards. Any Pokemon fans in here? Anybody like from their past? Or I didn't think so. They're all in the classrooms. I got a couple hands. But, uh, the, but my children are into the Pokemon stuff. And so they got all these Pokemon cards and they're plugging them in. And Andrew's putting them in there. And he realizes this card he has is the evolution. It's the next stage up of, the, of this other card. And he doesn't have the card he needs to play that one. So he gets all frustrated because he used to have it. And he'd given it to his older brother, Jonathan. And by the way, I have four children, three uh, boys at the end, and uh, my daughter leads the pack. But um, he, here comes John, Andrew up to Jonathan. He's like, I want my Snivy card, this card right here that I'm holding. And he's like, I want that Snivy card. And he's like, you can't have it. You gave it to me. And he's like, I didn't give it to you. He's like, yes, you did. And they start yelling at each other. And suddenly my six-year-old turns to his older brother and goes, you manipulated me. You're going to be a preacher. That's good words. You know, it's like, but what happens is, I don't know what Jonathan thinks manipulated means, but he gets all mad and he grabs the card and they start pulling on it back and forth. The thing's going to tear. I'm watching it get all, I just, you know, pull it out. I take it away. I say, that is now a sermon illustration. You guys can't have that back. So I, I put that there. And, and at the same time, while that trade war is going on upstairs, we're having an immigration problem. My son, Nathaniel, has locked himself in his room with his Legos, and his sister is in there only. She's the only one allowed in there to play the Legos. He has made a travel ban on his younger brothers coming into his bedroom. And so now they, in a protest, are angry and come to me, and they're like, Dad, Nate, let's Hattie in there. We won't let us in there. Why won't he do that? And I'm like, okay, I'll see if I can handle this. I go to Nate. I sit him down. I say, what's going on? Why aren't you letting your brothers in here? to play with the Legos. He's like, look, dad, they come in here and they play with my Legos and use my stuff. And then they break it and they make a mess and they leave me to clean it up. And I'm going, this sounds so familiar. (laughs) And And it is, it's so familiar because this is the nature of our place right now in the United States and politics. It seems that there's such a divide, isn't there? There's such a this group and that group. And then at the same time, you, you look at our culture and it's divided. We've got ethnic divides. We've got racial divides. We've got all kinds of divides happening in, in, in business and in culture. We've got churches against business. We've got, you know, we've got police versus other groups. It's just so divided right now in 
divisive. It's uncomfortable and it's concerning to me as a pastor and it should be concerning to us as churches about this division. Because the division is occurring in the church in which people are arguing over politics and Facebook is one of the ugliest places on the planet right now, it seems like. Anybody who's got an opinion, everybody else says the opposite and it's a yell fest all the time. And I just kind of wanted to address that and begin with a conversation here on Easter because this division that's occurring isn't something that's national. This isn't something that's political. This is something that's beyond even global. It's human. I mean, the reason I told the stories of my children is because it's interesting how much my home life parallels the events of this world. And it's probably true in your home life if you begin to think about the divisions that have occurred there. And the reality is that it's not the divisions themselves that are the problem, it's the root. Because we've tried all kinds of things to get rid of these divisions. And I think everybody has the same heart. And I, we were watching the uh, People versus O.J. Simpson on, on Netflix the other, through that last week. And so Rodney King was on my mind. And of course, Rodney King, his famous statement was, can't we all just get along? And it's exactly what I think the heartbeat is of so many Americans right now. Can't we all just get along? And we've tried. We've tried tolerance. We've tried all kinds of things. We're trying the coexist stuff. We're we're trying everything we can to figure out what's going on. How do we bring unity? And I'm here to tell you, we will never have reconciliation. We will never end the everybody versus everybody until we've cut the root of the problem. And the crazy thing about the root is that it's tangled around every human being's soul. And so if we're going to begin to defeat the problem of the divisions that are occurring, it must begin with the divisions that are occurring in our own soul. We must cancel and cut that very root that causes those divisions. What, what cuts this root? Well, I'm here to say this morning that I believe Easter cuts the root of division. And that it's Easter that brings about reconciliation. That's an audacious claim. I get that. But um, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating Easter. And Easter is the thing that is going to cut this root and bring about a transformation and ought to have already done so. And in this series, we're going to examine that conversation. And so it begins, though, with the question, well, what in the world is this root that brings about all this division? And I believe the root of that division is sin. The root of the division is sin. I know that's not a popular word. I know that's one of those words people are like, oh, sin. Yeah, I'm at church. I heard that word. Yeah, exactly. And I want to kind of paint out sin for you for a minute to show you why I really do believe that sin is the root of the divisions that we're seeing. In fact, if you've got a Bible, grab it. Open it to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11 in this. And if you don't have a Bible and you're a guest, that's fine. We provide Bibles. They're under the seats. You can just pull one out, and uh, you'll find it there on page 2 of that Bible, and you can read right along with me. And so what we're going to do is we're going all the way back to the beginning of the book and all the way back to the events that happened in what we all know as the Garden of Eden. But I'm going to give you kind of a, as you're turning there, I'm going to give you quite a, a synopsis of Genesis 1 and 2. Because in Genesis 1, God explains himself as the maker of everything. He makes the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea. He makes animals and man. He makes male and female. So everything is made. And then in chapter two, he takes humanity and he, and he tells a different story about how he's the provider for everything. He puts humanity in this garden. And in the garden, they have all the resources they need. They have all the food that they need. They have all the stuff they could ever want. And they have companionship. And in the midst of all of this beautiful provision, God says, now I am the maker. And as a maker, any maker has instructions on how he's made something. And so he turns to the humans and he says, listen, guys, there's this one tree in the center of the garden. Don't eat of that one. If you do, you're going to die. 
And so Adam and Eve are trolling along in the garden one day. We don't know how long this has been, but they've finally come to that garden in the, or that tree in the center of that garden. And they're, and they're staring at it. And there's this thing coiled around it. It's a serpent, as the Bible says. And, and this may be the first time they've ever seen a serpent. The reason why I think that is because when the serpent starts talking, they don't go like, you know, that thing's not supposed to talk. They'd never seen a serpent before. This is a new world, you know? They don't know what all these things are. So they meet this serpent that starts speaking to them. And we know later from the scriptures as it develops over time that this is actually the enemy of our souls. This is the devil who has come to tell and speak lies to our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are hearing the story. And what they're hearing from the serpent is information about God they had never heard before. See, they'd known God as this provider and the maker. And this one who gave instruction, and now they're hearing him say, you know, those instructions, they're really not there to protect you. They're actually keeping you from being like God. And where they were resistant at first, suddenly the resistance stops. And we pick up in verse 6 of chapter 3. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and there was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And what's very fascinating about this situation is that now she has ceased to look at God's instruction, do not do this, and says, you know what? God probably doesn't have this right. And she starts to judge things on her own. You know, that fruit looks pretty good. It's nice looking. It looks tasty. It's probably going to give me some energy, and it's going to give me wisdom. I think we should eat it. And in that instance is the classic example of the first sin of humanity. And so sin is this best defined as this rebellion against the maker and provider to make our own instructions for life and to provide for ourselves. And that's very interesting because if you think of a sin in that manner, that it's about us getting what we want as we desire in the way we want, the instructions we want to set and the way that we want to get it, when we see that come together, we understand why it begins to make problems for God. God doesn't like that because he's the provider and he's the maker and we are trying to be that now. But all of us have joined into this. Adam and Eve thrust us into this rebellion together. And it's proof that all of us have joined in simply with one basic illustration. Everybody in this room has at some point in your life lied. Isn't that true? All the liars, raise your hands. All the liars who are still lying didn't raise their hands. You know, this is how it works. And the reality is that we've all lied. But here's what's interesting. Why did we lie? Oh, I was trying to protect him or I was trying to protect her. Really? Well, that's what you desired to protect them. But really, it was hiding something. Lies are involved. And But guess what's weird? God said, one of the big Ten Commandments that we all pretty much know is God said, you shouldn't lie. Yet we told God, yeah, that instruction doesn't matter for this one. I know when instruction works here because I need to get this thing. We do the exact same rebellion all of us. And so this is a picture of us. This is us in rebellion against God. And the problem is that sin brings about some very real consequences. Remember he said, when you eat of this, you will surely die. And so in verse seven, it reads, then Adam and Eve died. No, it doesn't actually. And that's what's odd about the text. It doesn't say that at all. It says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And, he's, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Anybody have a problem with this picture? I mean, who else is in the garden that they have to cover themselves up for? You know, the total population of humanity is 
two, dos. Adam, Eve, you're naked, I'm naked, Ugh, we better hide, why? So loincloths together so she can't see me anymore because she's not seen you the whole time. What's going on in this picture? And suddenly it continues on because God shows up on the scene in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves among the trees of the garden. Why are they hiding from God? They're hiding from each other. They're hiding from God. You know what's interesting? When we hide from people, when we shade ourselves, when we cover ourselves, when we keep people at a distance, it's because we suspect something. Either we suspect something about somebody or we suspect something's going to happen to us. That if I was open, real, naked, if it were, about who I am, you might reject me. You might do something to me that I'm not comfortable with. And so when God sees this, he asks Adam a question. He says, hey, why, where are you? And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was afraid because I was exposed and I hid myself. Isn't this us? Who loves to be exposed in their most inner being? It is a scary thing. And so we were suddenly distanced from each other. They were hiding because they were exposed to each other. There was shame involved. There was guilt involved. They were hiding now from God because they were exposed before God, and they needed to get away from him. Classically, what has happened is there's been a divide. Adam and Eve did actually die. See, death is not always biological. Death is also relational. And what is horrific about death is when somebody dies, we lose the relationship for good. And it hurts. And when God said, you're going to take of that fruit, you're going to eat of it, you're going to die, we died relationally to God. There was a division in our relationship with him. We were distant from him, and we weren't going to be with him. We were now in rebellion we didn't need him to provide. We didn't need his instructions. We can do that all for ourselves. And here's what's crazy. When that occurs, the only place you and I now can get our needs met is on earth, is in this world at this time. And the world, the Bible says, only provides you three things. There's only three things we can run after in this world. And that's very interesting. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. What are these three things? Look at them carefully. The desires of the flesh, that's pleasure, fun, entertainment, titillation, sensuality, whatever you want to call it. That's the idea. It's, it's getting, having lots of pleasure. The second one is get you lots of stuff. Whatever you can see with your eyes. Ooh, that looks nice. I want to take it. Ooh, I enjoy that. I want more stuff. The third one is a pride of life. Something that makes you feel like you've been successful, that you've landed well, that life was worth it. Check me out. It may be your intelligence. It may be grades. It may be popularity and fame. But this is what we strive for in some way. I want to be a good parent. I want people to know I'm a good parent. I want my kids to know I'm a good parent. It doesn't matter. It manifests itself because we're seeking to fill our needs from inside and only from this world. Here's the problem. None of these things satisfy. Isn't it true? We can run after stuff and we can run after stuff, but it doesn't seem to be enough. Very few of us in this room will ever be rich enough to know that enough stuff doesn't satisfy. When Dale Carnegie, one of the richest men in all of history, was asked, how many more dollars until you're satisfied? He said, one more, just one more. It never stops. And so maybe it's fame, maybe it's popularity, maybe it's power, and yet what do we see? We see the people who get power are more power hungry, aren't they? 
We see people like Madonna who are so famous and yet they write regularly and and, and when they're interviewed, I'm just not satisfied so I have to push myself to the next level so that I can continue to think I'm significant. No, significance isn't known there. Or yet even you come to the position where it's pleasure and we're like, ah, how bad could it be to enjoy things and, and enjoy them all? And yet when we run after pleasures, be it food, be it drugs, be it entertainment, be it something, whatever it is, even now apparently phones, Suddenly, the problem is you're addicted to them, and while you don't want it anymore, you have to have it. No, 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 none of these things satisfy. They're illusory. They, they, they're fooling us. And so, we're in a situation where we are separated from God, but all we can get is the stuff from this world. But the second consequence of sin then, of this rebellion, is, is also horrible. Look it down. It continues on. He says, who t- God turns to him after he hears that he said he was naked and he hid himself. He says in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And verse 12 goes on to say this. This is funny. Not really. It's sad. But he says, the woman, guys, listen, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. It's her fault. Happening in every home across America this very day. And yet the reverse is true. Look down at verse 16. and the very end it says to the woman, he tells her, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. There's this conflict that has now occurred in human lives and it's about this one word. It's called we're selfish, self-centered. It's about me. It's my stuff. She's my wife. They're my kids. Unless they're bad, then they're hers. But then they're, it's my home. It's my people. It's my nation. This is how I think about my nation. This is how I want my nation. It's my world. Mine. And this is how we think. We think in the me, the my, the... And this is the selfishness that comes in. And James hits on the selfishness. In the book of James, chapter 4, James says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And this is what creates the divisions, right, in our world. Quarrels and fights, disagreements that bring division and divorce, that bring division between nations. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you all? That's a plural, not in you, singular. It's within you all. That your desires, your passions, these things that you want from this world, they're in conflict. You desire, but you do not have. You murder, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, meaning you can't ask God because he's distant from you. And so what he is claiming is here's the problem. You set your goal on a target. I want to have this pleasure. And somebody gets in your way with another schedule. And so you don't get to have that entertainment that day. Your kids need something else. You got to take them to a baseball game and you're sitting there going, case in point, that this is the truth, that when you have somebody get in the way of your goal, you get angry. Traffic. You know what I'm talking about? If you have kids and you try to get your kids to school on time, my children, we live down the canyon. We got to get them here for school. Every morning that 15 is backed up. So I have my my secret routes, right? And so I get on my secret route and we're driving along and I've got the kids and we're going to be late because so I'm going faster on my secret route, going my speed limit. So I'm making sure that as I'm going, I'm traveling and and lo and behold, this big truck is in my way and they're going their speed limit and I'm the pastor. So I take it very holy like, no, I get mad. I get freaked out. I'm like, get out of my way. This is my secret route. 
you're not supposed, what are you doing out here? You've ever said that when you're in traffic? When in the world are all these people going? They can't have somewhere to go. This is my time to get where I need to go. And if you're in a hurry, it's worse. Some of us have been literally at that point of screaming in the car, ah, you know, yelling. Because frustration and anger comes when someone gets in the way of your goal. Someone's stopping you from your, from your power. Somebody's going to keep you from getting that, that thing that you want or you need. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a promotion. You're going to do everything you can to get it, but you're going to be mad. You're going to go home and complain to your spouse. The reality is that the conflict of our selfishness with our desires creates divisions. It's my nation wants that stuff that your nation has. We don't think it's fair that you have it. We're going to take it. It's my family thinks that your family is mean. We're going to, it's my people don't have the power. It's my job, the mys with the desires create the factions who will form around to create power to get what we want. And the divisions begin. It's rooted in sin. It begins right there. These are the consequences of our rebellion against God. And so God looks at this and he sees the horrible things that we do to each other. Horrible things to get what we want and desire. And he says, I got to judge this. I got to deal with this. And so he's going to judge sin. And he says so. He's very clear. It makes him angry. He never intended us to do it this way. He intended him to be the maker and him to be the one who provides. And we do that for ourselves. And so now we mess it up by hurting each other. And he says, no, that is not how I intended. I'm going to judge it. Yeah, here's the problem. We all know that we're the ones who do it. And so he's going to judge us. I know he's going to judge me and suddenly I wonder how in the world, God, are you going to deal with sin then if you're going to judge me? And he says, I've got a way that I'm going to judge sin and not have to judge you. Um, That's fascinating. There's a way for him to cut the root without killing us. We should be listening. To cut the root of sin so the divisions can dissolve and be reconciled is because he has a way and it was through Jesus Christ. He himself, Jesus who is God, came to earth. He lived a perfect life and walked upon this earth until he, and he was brought to this cross and on the cross he was crucified and at the cross, God cut the root. He cut it out. The root was completely severed. And so now this sin was dealt with at the cross. How does this happen? What does this look like? Well, the, it's, it, it's cut through this thing called the great exchange. And it's found here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Right here at this bottom verse, it's verse 21, explains the great exchange. For our sake, it's saying, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So here's the picture. On one side is God. And God desires to, to, to give us the instructions for our lives, to provide for us everything that we need so we can be happy and joyful. And over here is us, we're rebelling. And so God now has to punish the rebellion. And so there's this conflict, this chasm. Well, Jesus comes along who is human, but he hasn't rebelled. He has a right standing with God, always good with God. And he comes in and he takes on himself all of our rebellion and swallows it. And in the great exchange, we give Jesus all of our sin. And in exchange, as he takes it on the cross and God pours out his punishment, we are set free while he dies. And then that doesn't stay there. 
He gives us his right standing with God. He gives us our being good with God so that when God sees us at the judgment, he doesn't see our pile and mountain of sin. He sees that as dealt with on Jesus and he sees us as if he would see his son and says, we're right, we're good. And this trait is given as a gift, God says, because we can't earn it, we can't deserve it. He says, you are all equal here, this is yours. So no wonder this starts to dissolve all the consequences of sin. Notice it says he reconciled us to himself. Look at that top verse. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled himself to us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What he means is he brought, Jesus brought God and us together. The term is called atonement. And it's an old English word that meant at one meant. And that was it. Two people were divided. When somebody atoned, it meant they were brought back together. They were now in relationship. And so Jesus atones for us and makes us right in the relationship so we can have that relationship with God. And this brings about all kinds of changes. Notice that term. He says, all this is from God. Well, what's all this about? The all this is what he said previously. All the way back up at verse 15. He said, first of all, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Notice what's defeated first, selfishness. We don't live for ourselves anymore. If you've come to know Christ, you don't live for me, myself, and I. It's not my stuff, my family, my world, my things. It's God's family, God's stuff, God's world. We live for Christ. And when we live for Christ, we walk in his example. And what did Jesus do? He died for others. And so we cease to be self-minded and we become God-minded and other-minded. And that's what the church is supposed to be. A people who is God-minded and he teaches us to love others as ourselves. And it kills and begins to dissolve the root of selfishness. In fact, as it moves forward, the next consequence begins to fall apart. That vision of all of these different divides of my race and my people and my career and my position. He says, you know what? We're done with that. The second thing that goes, he says, from now on, therefore, we guard no one according to the flesh. And this means in fleshly ways, in worldly ways, in human judgments and divisions. None of us consider each other any longer according to our various divides, socioeconomic, um, racial, ethnic, or any. No, no, we, we see each other in God's eyes. And God says there are two kinds of humans. There are rebels and the reconciled. And that's it. It doesn't matter your politics. It doesn't matter your sexuality. It doesn't matter what religion you're in. If we, all God sees is those who are in rebellion against him and those who are reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, we don't hold up all these other things. We go, but do you know Jesus? That's the central thing because we are a people that need to be saved, rescued from the root of sin. And all the other things are ancillary in a sense and, and they're redeemed when we're brought into him. But another sermon for another time. But the reality is those things disintegrate as we begin to see people as God sees people. And that's the attempt. The third thing that begins to dissolve is, is our old ways. You know, we're like clay a little bit. The older we get, the more set in our ways we get. Amen? The more you deal with a certain people, if you have a prejudice, the more you see those things, the more likely you're going to say, yeah, that's just like how all of you are. 
And that gets hardened and hardened and hardened the longer we live in those ways. And that's called the old way. And when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's like God poured fresh water on you as clay and now you're malleable. You have an opportunity to change. You have an opportunity to overcome the addiction. You have the opportunity to overcome those, those racist mindsets. You have an opportunity to see life in a grander way because he's softened us. And so these things dissolve. These things begin to go away. Now, it's not easy. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's like paddling up a river. Anybody ever had to paddle up a river against the current? That's hard. You get exhausted, you start drifting back down the river for a little while, and that's exactly what happens. I start yelling in traffic. I start getting mad at my kids. I start doing my own sin. Yes, we all continue in those sinful patterns, but God has now taken us in a new trajectory. And it's like you put a sail in that thing. And when we're tired, he keeps pushing us forward by his, by his presence. And what happens in is the Christian church is not supposed to be dividers. Hear me. We're supposed to be reconcilers, peacemakers, the scripture calls us. We're supposed to be out there bringing groups together, finding common ground because Christ brought the common ground and he cut the root of sin. And some of us right there were like, yeah, Greg, that's real nice. Uh, what in the world happened to the church then? I mean, look at all these denominations, all the racism, all the wacky divisions you guys make. Well, we'll deal with that next week in the next sermon. <laughs> Got to come back for that one. But uh, that's part of the series. The reality, though, is that I want to tell you is that God's aim is going to occur. He has cut the root at the cross. And this transformation does happen. It's happening Christians upon Christians upon Christians. And I'd share with you lots of stories if I had time, but I would just need to bring one final objection up because here's the problem. It's a great philosophy, but it just might not be true. Do you ever think about that? We could just be making it up. Because the Jesus is just one of hundreds of thousands of men and women who were crucified on crosses in the first century. What makes him any different? Great philosophy, interesting narrative. What proof do we have that any of this came about? And the answer is found in Easter. It's called the resurrection. You see, only the resurrection gives the hope of reconciliation. If there is no resurrection, there is no reconciliation. Because if Jesus died on the cross and just died, then he sinned. Because we die when we sin. That's part of the consequence. Don't touch the tree, you'll die. But Jesus wasn't held by death. He came back to life, therefore telling us that he had never sinned. He had overcome death. He had been the conqueror of death. And he now stands as the victor over death and sin. And so what's interesting then is that this is the centerpiece of all Christianity. If you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, you're here with your family member, you're hanging out today and you're like, I'm, I'm enduring church and you haven't fallen asleep yet, thank you. The reality is that you have one thing that says all you ever have to do to get grandma off your back, okay? Or mom or whoever it is. Prove the resurrection never happened. Paul put it this way, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're, you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, there is no reconciliation with God. We still stand divided from him, seeking the things that we need in our selfishness. But if the resurrection happened, then everything that Jesus said occurred and is going to occur, occurred. I mean, he is the reconciler. He's come back to life, overcome death, overcome sin to set us free, to take our sin and give us his right standing with God. So how can we prove that this has happened? Well, first of all, 
I want to point you guys, I don't have a long time to explain all this, so I want to point you guys to a small booklet. If you have, um, if you have questions and you'd like to know more, this booklet is out at our connections table. And if you're, if you're a doubter, a non-Christian, and you're just like, hey, I would, like to, I would love to check this out, this is the book you have to work through to, to work through the resurrection. This is a cold case detective named J. Warner Wallace who wrote a book of his investigation of the resurrection, and he argues why it, why it occurred. And so if you can argue with him, you're doing a good job. And so I want you guys to take that. But here, I'll summarize this quickly just so you got an idea so it's easier to read. And if you read that and tell me later, um, love to get you something else. But here's the point. The resurrection is proven like a four-piece puzzle, and that's it. Don't you think we could solve a four-piece puzzle? But if one piece of a four-piece puzzle is missing, a big part of the picture is gone. And so the four-piece puzzle is very simple. The first piece is that Jesus died. You know, very few scholars, 90, oh, I mean, there's a fringe group. You can always find some who would say, nah, Jesus never died. You know, he didn't even exist. That's a very small percentage of scholars. But everybody would agree that Jesus died. Not only was it attested in the Bible, but it's attested outside of the Bible by Roman and Jewish writers, historians, who say, yes, under Pontius Pilate, this guy, Jesus, was crucified and he died. And really, nobody can say, oh, he just fainted on the cross anymore. I mean, there's so much evidence of how good Romans were at crucifying people. They did it thousands and thousands of times. Besides the fact that Jesus had a spear thrust into his side, which punctured his heart, the man died. And even if he hadn't, and he had just been put in a cold tomb and he woke up, how's he walking around on crucified ankles? Like, hi guys, I'm alive. You know, that just doesn't work. And so the reality is nobody really doubts that Jesus died. He clearly died. And so that puzzle piece is pretty firm in place. The second puzzle piece that's pretty firm in place is the tomb was empty. Now, some people argue, oh, it was, he, he, he never even got to the tomb. But there, that, that's, there's no real evidence of that. Everything points that he was buried in a particular tomb, a tomb that we still have been venerating for the entire time since that time period when he rose. They continue to go back to that tomb. It's found in the location in Israel. We know that tomb. And the reality is that tomb's empty. They didn't drag out a body in the middle of the first century and go, there he is. Can we stop talking about this resurrection business? In fact, what's interesting is that in the Jewish writings to this day, it still says that the, they claim the disciples stole the body. Well, that's fine. That's a, that's a thought. But it only explains why the tomb is empty. And so the tomb has got to be empty for those two kinds of conclusions to come up. And so Jesus died, the tomb is empty. Isn't it really the hard part to deal with? It's the third one that changes the whole story. And that is that the disciples believe they saw Jesus, was, Jesus alive. It's not that I'm saying he was alive. Hey, see, the disciples saw him. No, they believed it. They made the claim in their writings, we saw Jesus alive. We ate with Jesus. We sat with Jesus. He taught us stuff. 150 people stood around him as he ascended into heaven. That's a lot of people, eyewitnesses. And they say, go talk to those people. They'll tell you what they saw. Decide, they believed what they saw. In fact, the disciples were so sure of what they believed, they would eventually die for what they believed. And he's saying, well, everybody, lots of people are dying for what they believe. Yes, lots of people die for what they're told. They may be told that this is the truth, and they go, I am so committed to that truth, I will die. Few people die for what they know is a lie. In fact, nobody does. Torture will bring it out of you. And they all died tortured. Twelve, Eleven of the twelve men died tortured, still claiming Jesus rose from the dead, still standing firm 
that he was alive and they, and they saw him. Well, maybe it was a conspiracy. Let me put it this way. Watergate was a conspiracy. Twelve guys conspired in Watergate and they couldn't last for three weeks. You're telling me 12 guys could keep something a secret while being tortured for 40 years? Their belief is difficult to, come by, to deal with, but then you finally add the last puzzle piece, and that is the doubters they turned. What doubters? Well, starting with a man named James that we read his book, James chapter 4. James himself was the brother of Jesus. He grew up watching Jesus grow up. Can you imagine what that was like? Sitting in the bathtub and Jesus walking around on the water, splashing you in the face. And he's like, Mom, Jesus splashed me. He's being mean. And Mary's like, no, he doesn't. He's sinless. He's not mean. It'd be so frustrating to be Jesus' brother. So it's no wonder Jesus comes out and claims he's the Messiah and he, and he declares this stuff. James is like, I'm not having it. He doesn't believe it. In fact, none of his brothers believe it, the Bible says. The, the eyewitnesses are, are clear. They, they didn't believe in their brother. But suddenly, James shows up later, and he's the leader of the church. And Josephus, a Jewish historian, says he was so well-known in Jerusalem, he was called James the Just. And he stood so firm for his brother that he was the Messiah that they threw him off the temple over it. How does he go from my brother's crazy to my brother is Christ, risen from the dead, God himself? except that it says right in 1 Corinthians 15 that he saw him. And then there's Paul. Paul, who wrote 2 Corinthians, who wrote all this stuff we've been looking at, was originally a man named Saul. He changed his name later in life to protect himself because Saul grew up a Jewish man who, when he heard about the church, decided we need to end this thing. Armed with the right of the Jewish leadership, he persecuted the church, killing people and arresting Christians wherever he could find them. The top number one terrorist of the, of the world against Christians suddenly was knocked down by the presence of Jesus himself on a road. And suddenly he had to switch positions. He goes from the greatest persecutor to the greatest promoter of the church. How does that happen? Except he said, I saw Jesus alive. Now, you could say this is some grand hallucination, but only one person usually gets a hallucination. Actually, only one person ever gets a hallucination. And the reality is, this evidence of these four pieces has only one solution. You have to throw another piece out in some other way, and that is that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, our sin has been dealt with, the root has been cut, and the divisions are being dealt with because God has reconciled us to him, and we are to go reconcile others. That's the beauty of what happened at Easter. And I find it fascinating. You know what pulls broken families together the fastest? Though they're divided and embittered, oftentimes what will often bring them together is an untimely death in the family. Everyone comes together because death is a unifier. No matter what group you're in, no matter what divided position you're in, no matter where you are on this planet, everyone is going to experience and fears death. Why would God choose to use the reversal of the one universal thing to get our attention? Maybe because he wants to unite us. Maybe because he's done with the division sin has created and he wants to say, I've reconciled you. So I encourage you, be reconciled to God. He's given you the way. It's a gift given to you today. And so we're going to sing together. The team's going to come up here and we're going to sing. But before we do that, I want to pray. So would you just bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to think through what you've given us. 
in the resurrection. Would you please challenge us further? Those of us who, who may have questions, help us to ask those questions and find answers. For those of us who know that we need to be right with you, God, would you begin to call us, please? Would you begin to call to their heart and, and bring them near to you? Draw them, God, because you long for a relationship. You gave your son so that that would happen. So God, would you allow them to receive it and accept it? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.